This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. It's Tuesday, October 12th. I'm Catherine Cruz. Will the starter gun go off for the Honolulu Marathon, as it did this weekend for the Chicago Marathon and yesterday's Boston Marathon? Well, we talked to Dr. Jim Barahal as that race was underway Monday afternoon. Barahal shared that he was disappointed the governor's announcement Friday didn't go far enough to encourage overseas participation in the Honolulu Marathon planned for December. But he recognizes the pressure was building to allow fans at the university of Hawaii football games. The fact that there was no one allowed at those games, I think that was creating an issue that was putting a lot of pressure. Um, and I know the mayor, of course, has a long affiliation with football and the University of Hawaii football specifically. Oddly or interestingly, I actually did UH football broadcast with uh, Rick Blangiardi back in 84, 85. So we go way back and I know how much he loves sports. So I think the pressure was building. And so A large part of that announcement last Friday was dealing with the backlash or the discontent about no one being allowed at the University of Hawaii football games, which is compounded by the fact that all of us who are sports fans are watching game after game, week after week, from stadiums on the mainland with 100,000 people going crazy and no mass. And so we're seeing this all over the country, the NFL games yesterday, And we're like, what's going on? We can't have anybody? Is there something different about our college football game? Is there something different about the air here? So when you see that, you are basically saying there's a difference of opinion. If you can't go to a game here in Hawaii, but you can go to a game literally everywhere else in the country, which means either we're wrong here in Hawaii or everybody else is wrong. That's the only way you can look at it. And so I think there was a lot of pressure to open things up a little so people could go to the football games. And that was my takeaway from the announcement. Along with that, of course, there were some mentions of other activities, group gatherings, which are primarily due to a lot of pressure from the wedding industry, which is basically going out of business, as a lot of businesses are here, and also some of the smaller running events and triathlons. Under 500 people were given permission to conduct their events. That was my takeaway from the announcement on Friday. So from the Hanu Marathon point of view, which is the largest sporting event, economic impact in Hawaii, 47 years of a great record, and I think doing a lot of great things for the community, and the community doing a lot of things for us. It's been a great, great run for us. We were disappointed because when we talk about professionally managed events, we like to think that we're as professional as anybody in the country, let alone Hawaii. And five of the six largest running events on the island on Oahu, events that are considerably larger than 500 people are actually Honolulu Marathon events, the sixth one being the Great Aloha Run. So in a way, we could see it as a first step towards opening up, and I am optimistic that that is the case. But we have a lot of planning to do to put on a major marathon, and I thought it made it more difficult for us. And given what we see around the country, with the Boston Marathon being held today, actually as we as we speak, The Chicago Marathon was held yesterday. We've seen the Berlin and London Marathons in the last month, and the New York Marathon will be in a month. Clearly, marathons are being held all over the country and the world, large marathons, with some guidelines and restrictions, but nevertheless being held. So I think the announcement Friday, yes, it was a start, but it is making things very difficult and very different from what's going around the country. So as I say, I think it creates more questions than answers. You know, we did hear Mayor Blangiardi give his support for the Honolulu Marathon, but you would have liked to have seen something clear from the governor. I would have, but I also am aware that, you know, Mayor Blangiardi, as I said, is a sports guy. I think he understands business. I think he's prudent. Nobody wants to do anything that's going to create public health problems or disasters. And we've all had to live with COVID now for over a year and a half. I'm also a physician, and I've worked very closely on the COVID situation in a number of capacities, particularly rapid testing. And as part of a telemedicine system that I've helped develop, we've seen tens of thousands of people. And so just from having that finger on the pulse of the community and the outbreaks, which was really going pretty crazy in August, and there was a lot of cases, no question about it, We could see from where we were sitting, which is actually almost real-time, seeing the reports of exposures, ordering tests, uh, reviewing tests, uh, sending people to the emergency room, real-time, real life. The Delta variant peaked at the end of August. There's no question. 
And so I think the restrictions that were put in place on September 13th didn't make a lot of sense to me because Delta had already peaked. And I was concerned that by putting in those restrictions that as the numbers would begin to drop dramatically, which they have, that there would be credit given to those restrictions as to that's why the numbers dropped there. And they had nothing to do with it. Delta had peaked at the end of August. So we got ourselves into a situation where there's a sense that these restrictions were somehow part of the reason why the numbers dropped, which has led to these continuing restrictions that we're seeing in Hawaii, but not seeing anywhere else. The numbers dropped everywhere, whether cities or states put in restrictions or not. So it's a tough situation. Well, the big wild card is obviously Japan. You normally get so many runners that come over, and your sponsors are tied in with that. What are you expecting from Japan? Well, one interesting thing with the Hanu Marathon and Japan, of course, about 70% of our revenue comes from Japan, either through entry fees or sponsorships. And I have to say, I have to give a shout-out to two of our, our big sponsors, Japan Airlines and Mizuno, the athletic company because they have stuck with the Hanu Marathon. And I think even though we didn't put the event on last year, we had a virtual event. These sponsors have stayed with us. And even in the face of perhaps not even being able to do the event this year, they've continued to pledge their support. And so I think, you know, not only the Hanu Marathon, but the community owes some gratitude to these sponsors who believe so strongly, not only in the Hanu Marathon, but in Hawaii. They're continuing to support an event. In Mizuno's case, Last year was the first year they were a sponsor, so this is their second year, and we've never put on an event. And so we're so appreciative of that. And I know that So with the Japan side, there's not going to be a lot of people from Japan. There's still not a lot of travel allowed. People from Japan have to quarantine for two weeks when they return home. So we're getting hurt really badly, as are all tourism-related businesses, by the lack of people from Japan. We had a pre-entry in Japan where people could express an interest in registering, but we didn't take their money because we didn't want to take their money. We didn't know what the situation was going to be. We had about 4,000 people pre-registered. That was another thing that was disappointing about the announcement last Friday. Had there been a clear message that they were going to allow the marathon, it would have allowed people not only from Japan but from the mainland United States to enter the event. And because of the restrictions that are in place now and the uncertainty of when they will be eased up, if ever, before the end of the year, it's next to impossible for anybody to enter the event, which means it's going to be much smaller, which that's fine with us. But from an economic point of view, we are a business, and there becomes a certain tipping point for every business where it becomes very difficult to maintain yourself. About two weeks ago, before this announcement, we as a team, as an marathon team, we made a decision that we were going to act as if the event was going to happen. 100%. As I said, we leaned into this and said, we're going although we didn't know for sure, and we still don't, because to do anything else would meant it would be a self-fulfilling prophecy, and the event wouldn't happen. So we're proceeding as if it's going to happen, but as we've moved deeper into our planning, a number of the vendors that we previously worked with have gone out of business or things have happened to them. For example, the Malasadas, which is like a, a huge thing that we love for the marathon. We make uh, fresh Malasadas at the finish line, We've done that for a few years, make 40,000 malasadas. And we want to do that even though we know it's going to be primarily a local event. The company Centerplate, which had the concession at Aloha Stadium and different things like that, they went out of business. So something that you know you kind of take for granted as a business where you were going to do the malasadas like we've done every year, all of a sudden it doesn't exist anymore. So we've had to completely reinvent how we're going to do that. And and how we're going to do that is we have to buy all the kitchen equipment and hire somebody who has knowledge in this area to do this for us. So, for example, we're going to have to spend almost $40,000 buying kitchen equipment in order to, to be able to, to have the malasadas. And so there's dozens of things like that that we have to do. But every business has to do that. you know. And I know that the wedding industry has been hurt. So many businesses, so many restaurants. This uncertainty, you know, crushes business. What are you doing about the competitive runners, you know, the runners from Kenya? How does that work? I went through the numbers a few years ago. We've had about 750,000 finishers from Hawaii in the history of the race. A lot of people, many are deceased. Um, you know, most don't do it anymore. But it kind of, it, it, it runs through families. It's a huge part of the fabric of, of Hawaii. 
And I think people take great pride in that finisher shirt, which you have to complete the race to get it. It's a, a point of great pride for Hawaii. And I think one of the things that has made it so important and such a source of pride is it is a world-class event. And part of that is that we've brought in fast runners from everywhere. Of course, in the last number of years, Kenyans are dominating these these races. The Kenyan won the Boston Marathon today. So if you're going to bring in fast runners, you're going to have Kenyans. So we think it's important to continue our tradition of fast running at the front, even though that costs us money. It's very difficult in this environment to make those financial commitments to those runners having to come to Hawaii if the race is not going to be held. So they have to train to come here, and they have to forego other activities, other possible races, and we have relationships with managers and agents around the world. So we can't bait, we can't pull a bait and switch and say, ah, sorry, it got canceled. So we've had to make those commitments as well. And we are at this point planning on bringing in four top runners. They just happen to be Kenyans, just so we can have something at the front and continue the tradition of a fast running. We've had three course records in the last four years from 2016 to 2019 we are shattering our course record. So we want to continue the tradition of fast running, and then we won't what, be able to have a deep field. We're not going to break any course records this year, but we still want to keep it fast. And then Boston staggered uh, their start times. I'm not sure Chicago did. Is that even a consideration for us here? Because it would be so hot. Well, we actually had a plan last year. J.J. Johnson, our race director, who handles most of the logistics, and I think he's the best in the country, we have a very robust plan that we had, we did share with the city last year, and we've tweaked that even more this year. So we spent a lot of time thinking about that specifically, this wave start. We, we start them in groups, and how far can we spread that out? And exactly what you said, if we spread it out too far because of the heat, the marathon starts at 5 a.m. to get people as much time as possible before it gets too hot. And the course also turns on itself. So you create a lot of uh, logistics and health problems by staggering it out too far. But we have it worked out very well that we can start in groups certainly smaller than 500 people and clear the finish line in, in about 40 minutes. So we're very confident in a, in a wave start that will help keep social distancing. You know, We also plan on having masks for everybody at the start and finish. We just ordered uh, 20,000 masks this week which is another example of having to spend money to put this on. We also have very cool water containers. It holds about eight ounces. It's a, a rubber container. It's going to be logoed and, mm -hmm. uh, again, a great expense that we are going to give personalized water container to every participant in the race so they can carry their own fluid to limit the, the, the human interaction at the aid stations. We've also, JJ has also developed, uh, I, I would call them automated Eight stations. These are eight stations. They don't require people to hand the cups to the to the runners. There's basically self service, and so with their own water containers and the self service aid stations, we'll be limiting the interaction out on the course. So we've done a lot of these kind of things in anticipation of what we might be allowed to do. That was Dr. Jim Barrahall, president of the Honolulu Marathon, talking about trying to plan for the December event, though it's not clear if the state will okay the premier world-class sporting event. Uh, just recently, the Kona Ironman Championships announced that it's moving the competition to Utah because of concerns about COVID restrictions on the Big Island. Both of those events bring in millions to the state economy. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. What comes to mind when you hear this list of words? Human figure, bronze, sold, uh, shoulders, plinth. If you said sculpture, or more specifically bust, then you're correct. 
The dictionary defines it as a sculpted or cast representation of the upper part of the human figure, depicting a person's head and neck and a variable portion of the chest and, sh and shoulders. And if you're wondering what the bottom section that supports the bust is called, that's what a plinth is. And now that you're warmed up, we, what we want to know for today's Backyard Quiz is what historical political figure who played an important part in ending feudal China has eight statues or busts in Honolulu. You'll get bonus points if you know the location of one of them. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. NareetHawaii.com. Civil Beats Reality Check segment today looks at the rising price tag of Oahu's rail project. The city's legal costs in an intimate uh, domain battle could jump from $4.5 million to more than $23 million. Here to tell us more is reporter Marcel Henre. Morning. Hey, Catherine. Good to be back. So what parcels are we talking about that's going to cost so darn much? Yeah, so this uh, regards basically that the Heart Board is going to have a series of meetings um, coming up on Thursday, and they're going to discuss increasing, authorizing the amount uh, that they're paying in legal fees for this eminent domain battle with Howard Hughes. And so these are parcels uh, that are located in Kaka'ako, you know, Howard Hughes and its subsidiary Victoria Ward, pretty prominent developers in that area developing the upscale retail that you're seeing there with uh, the commercial and also residential, the high-rise condos. So the city needs uh, what amounts to about two acres across various parcels that run along Ward Village in Kaka'ako for the rail project. And the city and Howard Hughes remain vastly apart in a, in a they're in a legal battle, you know, but they're, they're they completely disagree over the impact and the value of uh, this condemnation for the rail property for two acres. The city initially offered three point, I'm sorry, $13.5 million for what amounts to two acres uh, along Ward Village. And according to new documents, a new slide presentation that was released in advance of these meetings, Hart is saying that it believes that Howard Hughes is going to be asking for more than $200 million in damages for this acreage that's needed for rail in Kaka'ako. Well, it's kind of curious because, you know, who benefits by rail coming down to Ala Moana? I mean, the, the big land owners down there. You know, I can, right, see, I can see people who, uh, uh, you know, uh, rail naysayers saying, okay, another reason why we should stop at middle. Right. And, and I mean, this has come up at previous discussions, uh, public meeting discussions that, you know, Howard Hughes on, on one hand is marketing a lot of Ward Village as, you know, the site of a future rail line. But at the same time, it's really playing hardball in terms of this uh, eminent domain. We haven't seen a lot of these eminent domain cases go to court. Um, you know, the, the city has has managed to, to skirt a lot of that. But this is one case, you know, you've got a prominent developer, um, you know, mainland-based Howard Hughes. They're, they're really playing really playing tough. So tell us about the law firms who stand to uh, benefit. Yeah, so what they're going to look at on Thursday is a potential $7 million increase in the legal fees. And this would go to two firms. Uh, one of them's local, Starn, O'Toole, Marks, and Fisher. 
and you've got some uh, some big players there. The, the former lieutenant governor, Doug Chin, is one of the directors there, as is Ivan Louis Kwan, who's a former Hart board director. Uh, another firm that that's going to is called Nossaman LLP, and they're on the mainland, so far as I can tell. Now, what's interesting is that, you know, the, the, the fees that were originally approved for this it started at $4.5 million. And so now they're looking at a $7 million increase. It would actually bring the total, because uh, it's been gradually climbing, to over $23 million that the city will be uh, uh, spending to fight Howard Hughes over what it sees could be a, a $200 million uh, take, you know, if, if it's not successful in this, in this lawsuit. I can just kind of hear the gasps out there amongst our listeners, you know, as as they watch the the price tag potentially go up. Yeah, this would be a huge increase. I mean, the 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 Hart Project's entire eminent domain budget is is about two hundred million dollars. It's in that range. This this would be a huge increase to what it would need to spend on uh, on property acquisition. Okay, well, all eyes will be on that Thursday meeting. And yep. We know sure. you'll be there. <laughs> I'll, I'll be covering it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. Appreciate it. That was uh, transportation reporter Marcel Henri with today's reality check. You can read his story online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. HPR is seeking candidates for a multimedia producer to oversee production of on-air promos, live music events, and other content for broadcast and digital platforms. If you have experience in audio recording and production, if you're well-versed in audio capture and storage systems, and have a love for public radio, we would love to hear from you. Learn more on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, welcoming the community with a reimagination of its antiquity and the body gallery, featuring a new soundsuit sculpture by artist Nick Cave. Honolulumuseum.org. you know it's National Energy Awareness Month? Well, this morning, the conversation, Savannah Harriman-Pote joins us. She's the lowdown on a new report looking at energy usage across the state. Good morning. Good morning, and happy to be here. Yes, it is National Energy Awareness Month, according to the U.S. Department of Energy. But also locally, we celebrated Energy Efficiency Day last week, October 6th. There was a dual proclamation by both the governor as well as the mayor of Honolulu, Rick Blangiardi, that was specifically looking at this concept of energy efficiency. It's pretty straightforward. It's basically using less energy to achieve the same task. So the hope is that it'll save money, it's better for the environment, and it's often tied into other sustainability goals like clean energy, which is a statewide goal that we're trying to transition ourselves off of carbon-based energy sources. Right, and at that news conference, they talked about, you know, the plan to uh, switch over to, like, green buses, electric buses. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a pilot underway right now. Absolutely. And they also highlighted businesses who are looking at ways to become more energy efficient. It's a really important tool because we are so reliant on energy for everything we do every day, and it is so expensive in Hawaii to use energy. According to the governor's office, Hawaii residents pay as much as 260% more than the U.S. average in electricity bills. And this was a real sticking point for Mayor Blangiardi when he was talking in his press conference celebrating the city's energy initiative energy efficiency initiatives, this idea that we need to make energy more affordable for people who live here, particularly coming out of the pandemic. Energy efficiency will reduce the high cost of energy for residents and businesses of the city and county of Honolulu, our city, as we recover from the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. 
and whereas low and moderate income households especially benefit from energy efficiency as larger portions of their income are spent on electricity and gas. And mind you, we're very sensitive to that. We're very sensitive to that, to the high cost of energy and so many of our families living paycheck to paycheck. Energy efficiency can make a big difference in their lives. Hmm. Now, Energy Efficiency Day comes on the heels of a report that was looked at by the University of Hawaii Economic Research Organization, New Hero, about where exactly our energy usage is across the state. So they looked at 2019 residential energy use survey from the Hawaiian Electric Company and broke it down by the largest use appliances. So basically, if you walk through your home, what is sucking the most energy? And it's a little bit intuitive. What they found was that refrigerators use across the state an average of about 20% of electricity, followed by other electrical devices. Water heaters were a big offender. Laundry takes a lot of energy. But there was some other really interesting data that was in this report. And I spoke to Nori Tarui, who is the UH professor of economics and one of the authors of this report, kind of looking at that data, specifically at the difference between houses that had photovoltaic systems or solar power and houses without photovoltaic systems. And kind of counterintuitively, one of the things that they found is that households with solar power systems ended up using more energy than households without solar power, possibly because energy was more affordable. And another important finding was who actually had access to single home solar power systems. Here's Nori Tarui. What's also striking from the study is that the ownership of solar panels and solar water heater and electric vehicles, they all seem to depend on the household income level. And if you look at household groups with higher income level, then the share of households with solar water heater, solar PV and EV, they are all higher with solar in- uh, higher income households. So specifically in his data, he found that 40% of households surveyed that had incomes higher than $150,000 had some sort of access to solar power or solar power systems on their homes. Whereas when you looked at groups with who were making less than $30,000 a year, only 10% or less than 10% of those households had solar power systems which is kind of intuitive because there's upfront cost to solar power and many people who are making less than $30,000 don't live in single homes that have access to these systems. But if we're thinking about energy efficiency and we're thinking about Mayor Blangiardi's effort to make it more affordable, how do we find systems or ways to make solar energy more accessible? Ah, yes, the $64,000 question. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Savannah. Thank you very much. We've been talking with the conversation Savannah Harriman-Pote about Uhiro's recent report on energy usage across Oahu, Maui, and Hawaii counties. Look for links to the report on hawaiipublicradio.org later today. Increasing access to solar power is one of the big reasons behind the Department of Hawaiian Homelands to propose solar farms on Hawaii Island. It's also part of DHHL's uh, Ho'omalu'o Energy Policy, which was enacted in 2009 and seeks to enable Native Hawaiians, in concert with the broader community, to lead Hawaii's effort to achieve energy self-sufficiency and sustainability. The Conversations Russell Subiano talked with the Department's Information and Community Relations Officer, Cedric Duarte, to find out where they'll be built and who benefits from them. If we could just talk, you know, like basics of the proposed solar farms, where it'll be located, how much power it will generate, etc. Right now, the Department of Hawaiian Homelands is pursuing the development of two different solar farms, one in Kauai High near the harbor in the industrial area, about 21 acres over there, and that project could be up to about 4 megawatts. And the other location is in our Kalawa lands, which is across from the airport. Uh, We're looking at about 30 acres over there and up to about 8 megawatts. Uh, Both of those proposed projects would have a solar battery included as well. 
the power that's generated from these solar farms, do they go somewhere specific? Do they go to the general grid or do they go to Hawaiian homestead land? The idea behind community-based renewable energy is that the power provided would serve um, residents who meet 80% or below of the area media income. What the department is proposing here with these two projects is that the subscriber list um, would be beneficiaries, both homesteaders and applicants on the waiting list, who meet the income qualifications of community-based renewable energy as described by Hawaiian Electric. Where is DHHL in the process right now? I know that there are public hearings scheduled tonight and then Wednesday morning. You were talking to me earlier about how there is a process for this kind of of proposal. And I, and I know that DHHL has already spoken to beneficiaries. So where is the department in the process right now? Department of Hawaiian Homeland is fairly early in the process for developing these projects. So one of the first things that we do whenever looking to work on a project for beneficiaries is we go out for beneficiary consultation, especially when it has to do with what we call a land disposition or providing somebody use of our lands. So we went out to beneficiary consultation in December of 2020. We went back out again in July of 2021 with an update, and the beneficiary consultation report was then accepted by the Hawaiian Homes Commission. And sort of the next milestone for us is to conduct these public hearings so that the public has an opportunity to get their voices and opinions into the public record. And once that's done, really it's a waiting game of when Hawaiian Electric is going to then issue their request for proposal so that our proposals can go forward and, you know, be considered by them. It's just important to note that, you know, we anytime you do a renewable energy project on state lands, there's this really long process to arrive at the place where you can submit a proposal. You know, we could submit this proposal and it could get declined by Hawaiian Electric. So we're, we're still really early in the process right now. Assuming that this does go through, how do these farms fit into the department's Ho'omalu'o energy policy? I know there are some specific objectives within the policy. This sounds like it could possibly fit into objective number two. Well, I think one of the things that is really intriguing about community-based renewable energy, at least for DHHL, is number one, it does fit into the department's 2009 Ho'omaluo energy policy, um, specifically probably objective four, which, gonna provide, which we aim to provide energy efficiency opportunities to homesteaders. And what this, with community-based renewable energy, we're going to be able to provide a direct benefit to eligible homesteaders and possibly applicants on the waiting list as well. Usually when the department disposes of land that we make general lease revenue, you know, those funds go into the development of new homesteads or they go into the repair and maintenance of existing homestead communities. You know, those dollars are largely invisible to the beneficiary community. Community-based renewable energy would allow DHHL to provide a direct benefit and a cost savings on the utility bill to eligible beneficiaries. Well, that'll be huge with the cost of electricity all across the state for beneficiaries to, to receive some cost savings on that end. That'll, that'll be huge as well. Yeah, and, and, and it's an opportunity for Native Hawaiians to receive a direct benefit. What other sustainable energy opportunities is the department looking at? Are there some maybe proposed wind farms down the road or are there other islands some solar farms may be built on? Right now, these are the two projects, renewable energy projects that DHHL is pushing forward. Um, there aren't any plans for new opportunities at this time, you know, but, you know, we always work with our beneficiary community to find ways to provide more benefits to Native Hawaiians. There may be some beneficiaries out there who are listening and are wondering why the department is putting a solar farm on land that could be used for homestead. Can you kind of share what the distinction is between what can be used for homestead land, what can be used for uh, other projects? You know, within the Department of Hawaiian Homelands pro- planning process, there are island plans and there are regional plans. Both island plans and regional plans are developed in consultation with the beneficiary community, and lands are designated for specific uses. The land in Kauai is in an industrial area, and those lands are designated for industrial uses. Solar would be appropriate for that area in Kauai. The Kalawa lands across from the airport are lands that we're not going to be able to develop in the near 20 to 30 year time horizon, you know, due to water constraints, infrastructure, and so on. When it comes to building homes, I think sometimes what gets lost in 
you know, putting together community is the infrastructure. So to me, it seems like it's just as important to have land set aside for Hawaiians to build homes, but also have infrastructure available, specifically power. Yeah, I think it's really important that under Purpose 1 of the Hawaii State Constitution, you know, part of our responsibility is the development of lots for residential, agriculture, pastoral purposes. And, you know, the development of those lots includes providing water, especially, you know, access. Sometimes we have very rural lands and we need improved access to those lands. And, you know, the opportunity to get loans on those very rural lands. If you're going to go out and get a USDA loan, you need to have access to power. It's really important that the department continues to push forward opportunities, not only to provide direct benefits to Native Hawaiians, but also to continue to develop revenue and so that we can go out and develop new homestead lots and make needed repair and maintenance on these aging homestead communities. We mentioned before that there will be public hearings taking place Tuesday night and Wednesday morning. What I think is pretty interesting about these public hearings is that the department is trying out a new process for these public hearings. Can you share a little bit more about what's new? With the pandemic impacting the way that we hold meetings, many of us have adopted utilizing Zoom technology or Teams or any type of virtual conference technology in order to participate in public meetings. But not everybody has adequate internet access. So what we're doing is we're providing not only an opportunity for residents to participate in the public hearing process virtually, we are going to be on site as well for all of these public hearings that we're going to be having. And there'll be the commission meeting where they make the final decision making is going to be live streamed on our department's website. What's unique here is there's an opportunity for anyone to participate, whether they want to come in person, they want to dial in through the internet, they want to dial in by phone. This process is exceptionally transparent and allows anyone to participate. All right. Appreciate your time, Cedric. Thank you, Russell. I appreciate it. That was JHHL's Cedric Duarte talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. For more information on those public hearings scheduled for tonight and tomorrow, check out links on our website later today. Earlier in the show, we asked you about one of the many statues and busts located around Honolulu depicting the first president of the Republic of China, who some refer to as the father of the nation. When he was 13, the young scholar enrolled as a boarding student at Iolani School. He spoke no English, but persevered and excelled in his studies. When he graduated in 1882, he was awarded a prize for academic achievement by King David Kalakaua. The future political leader would also attend Oahu College, now known as Punahou School, for one semester before going back to China. In 1911, he made history by leading the overthrow of the Manchu dynasty. We're talking about Dr. Sun Yat-sen, the uh, answer to today's backyard quiz. In addition to two statues on uh, Iolani School's campus, his likeness can be found at Terminal 2 of the Daniel K. Inouye Airport, St. Louis School near Clarence T.C. Ching Center, Sunhua School in Chinatown, Chinese Cultural Plaza, Sun Yat-sen Memorial Park in Chinatown, and the Taiwan Economic and Cultural Office in Nuuanu. And congratulations, uh, John of Punchbowl, you are today's winner. And mahalo to listener Peter Rozak for suggesting this quiz. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for HPR comes from Mid-Pacific Institute, committed to sparking creativity and unlocking student potential with a virtual pre-K to elementary school open house October 16th, 9 to 11 a.m. Registration at midpac.edu. What determines your happiness? A happy life, a good life means getting rid of all those negative emotions. Oh, if times are bad, if the world's falling apart, then I definitely can't be happy. Wrong. 
and wrong. We'll talk about why science says, even with every problem in the world right now, you deserve to be happy. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634. Teach a man to fish and you feed him for a lifetime. There is power in that statement. Hawaiian activist and Molokai resident Walter Riddy has worked over decades to restore ancient fish ponds. He sees that window to the past can put us on a path toward future resiliency. Riddy is the founder of the nonprofit group Aina Momona. Aina Momona means like the fat land. Molokai was noted as an Aina Momona island where they produce more food than, than they needed. That's what made Molokai famous. It was all of the reefs. We have a long, a huge reef system, and we have all these valleys on the north. The reef system is on the south shore, and the valleys are on the north shore. So we had lots of starches from the valleys and lots of protein from the reefs. So this idea of returning to our uh, fish ponds, I mean, Molokai has many fish ponds. Uh, and, you know, uh, the various islands have, uh, you know, various in various states of repair, <laughs> in need of repair, I guess. Um, yes. So so share with people what we need to do to, to make ourselves sustainable again. Well, the word Aina Momona um, really became popular because of the reefs on our South Shore Reefs. The fish ponds doubled the capacity of what was being produced naturally on the reefs, the reef system on Molokai. Molokai has the largest reef system than any other island. We have like 14,000 acres of reef on our south shore. For some reason, um, the reefs were left fallow, and I guess because there's so many Hawaiians that were dying because of diseases. On this one thing, and then most people were looking to go into the cities and get out of the country. So we lost a lot of the workers for the reefs, I mean, for the fish ponds. So right now, the good thing about the fish ponds is that they're like, they've been there for like 800 years in various disrepair positions, but um, all it takes is a little effort to refix and put up the walls again. And then the, the actual management of the ponds, uh, the genius of the ponds is that all it takes is a few people that can manage like a 50-acre pond. They can stock the pond by standing in one place, and they can harvest from the pond by standing in that same spot. Is there one pond in particular that you can point to as a model of, you know, getting it back to what it used to be? I would say Kiavanui Fish Pond. Uh, it's owned by Kamehameha Schools. It's in the Ahupua of Ka'a, Ka'amola on, on the island of Molokai. Um, that one, we fixed the walls twice on that one, about 2,000 feet of wall. We finished fixing the wall, and a very two days later, Fukushima happened, oh. and a tidal wave came and knocked down the walls, and we had to start from scratch again and rebuild all the walls. And so, you know, what kind of fish are we harvesting from there? Fish ponds, um, you raise herbivores, fish that eat limu. Um, you don't want to raise carnivores because carnivores, the big ones eat the small ones. So we have a few carnivores in the pond to take care of any of the fish that has diseases. But the trick is to manage the carnivores. And basically, the fish ponds, um, it, it, it feeds itself. And there's a very limited impact on, on nature because everything um, produces in that pond is produced by nature. Um, nature comes in and changes the, the water 
twice a day um, with high and low tides. So the moon is the one that keeps the, the water fresh in the ponds. And these, and all we do is make sure that there's a lot of limu that's growing in the pond so that the fish can, can survive. Because they don't eat each other, they eat limu. The interesting thing about fish ponds is that the state of Hawaii's laws says that anything below the high water mark belongs to the public. The only thing that is private that is below the high water mark in Hawaii are fish ponds. The fish ponds are considered lands. They have tax map key numbers and they're private property. So the ability to use these fish ponds um, to raise food is still available and they're private and private property. All it takes is a little bit of effort and some knowledge of how to raise herbivore fish. And what do you say to people who might throw out that it may be good to do what you're advocating, but it's not enough to feed all of our people? Yeah. See, I guess the idea of making money and feeding a lot of people is to cram as much fish as possible into a square every square foot of water. And the more you can cram into that square foot, the more profit you make, the more people you can feed. And that's, that's been basically the style that has bring forth um, putting in too much food, processed food, using soy as a protein for the fish. And there's, when you cram a lot of fish together, you have diseases that happen really fast. So the idea that the Hawaiians had was, is allow nature to feed, to run itself naturally. So a fish pond would probably feed one ahupua'a. So one fish pond cannot feed the whole island. So that's why in Molokai we have like 70 fish ponds. So the idea is to have a lot of fish ponds and to raise fish um, in a natural environment, in a natural way. For us on Molokai, we're trying to figure out our future, and we're beginning to realize that in order to know what our future is, we need to understand the past. The past is like a window to your future. So you use everything that worked, that was successful, and you discard the things that are not successful because your kupuna didn't use them. On Molokai, we're, we're looking to make Molokai again Aina by looking to the past. And so you're a little bit wary about these proposals for industrial aquaculture farms. Yeah, I'm, I'm really wary because the environment is really under stress. Climate change is like putting in, warming up our water temperatures and it's having negative impacts on the coral. Anytime you have negative impacts in the system, it, it affects everybody in the system. So with the higher tides and overfishing and climate change contamination from nuclear waste from Japan, plastics in the water, fishermen using long lines and massive nets. All these are negative impacts of making our natural system that that is there to feed us dangerously collapsing here. So when now these people want to go in into EVA and put these giant net pens to feed fish and nobody understands the negative impacts from Diseases when you crowd fish into one small space or diseases from throwing all of those soy protein food into the water and how we don't understand all of the the other negative impacts in the system. And if you add these, these negative impacts to the climate change impacts and the other thing I worry about is that the Ever Plains um, is being developed and that's where all the industry is on Oahu. And that's having an impact on the ocean. We have all of these oil tankers that are that, that could, I don't know if they ever had oil spills, but when you turn the television on, you can see oil spills all the time. There's a lot of negative that's going on in the ocean, and I see this idea of raising fish in close quarters, tons of fish, um, as adding to that list of negative impacts because there's no proof as to what kind of negative impacts um, all of this is going to have. 
And you have uh, connected with a group that has raised some of these concerns about commercial farming aquaculture uh, ventures on the mainland as well. Yeah, I don't have a real firm connection with them, but they have the same kinds of problems, um, I would say, throughout all over the world, you know, different countries, um, as everybody's trying to figure out how to survive. So they reached out to help us try to tell our stories so that we could get our stories out about the negative impacts happening in Hawaii. Do you think this might become, a, I don't know, a flashpoint for the community as the permits start moving along and you start seeing more of these aquaculture ventures being proposed? Yeah, I'm hoping that it does. I think everybody's beginning to realize that not only the ocean is in jeopardy, but the land is in jeopardy. And we're putting too many people on these little islands. We're putting too many, we're taking too much out of these, um, out of the ocean with all of our fishing techniques. Sooner or later, people are going to just realize that everything is going downhill and we're, we're reaching a tipping point in our environment. So people begin to realize that there is a lot of negative impacts and that our environment cannot handle much more. Molokai resident Walter Riddy talking about Aina Mamuna and his latest uh, passion for rebuilding traditional fish ponds as a solution to food sustainability. The New York group that he has linked with is Don't Cage Our Oceans, a coalition of groups which is pushing back against industrial aquaculture. Is there room for both? We continue the conversation about this tomorrow. Well, that's it for us. Tomorrow we plan to hear from Hatch Blue as we talk about offshore fishing farms. What are your thoughts on this issue? Share your comments or questions by calling our talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.